Welcome, everyone. Delighted to have you all this evening. My name is Hal Harvey, and I am a, an energy policy geek. I've worked in energy policy for more than 20 years. Uh, and included in that is a, an extended uh, bit in China, where I've set up the China Sustainable Energy Program about 15 years ago, and did some math recently and realized I'd been there at least 50 times. Um, but since so much is happening in China, I'm going to focus on that a little bit. My colleague here is Eric Beinhacker. Eric is the economist that I admire most in the world. He's the author of a spectacular book called The Origins of Wealth, um, and his specialty is in agents-based economics. It's a whole new approach. I hardly recommend you read his book. He's also the director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking at Oxford University. Um, so he's a, uh, he's a great resource for us all. We're going to, we've got an hour this evening, and we thought we'd break it up with 20 minutes where Eric and I will feed you a high-protein meal. Um, <laughs> I'm going to talk about the physical form of cities, and Eric's going to talk about the economics of cities. Uh, and then we're going to talk to each other for another 20 minutes about how to solve the carbon problem, and you'll see these issues relate to each other. Surprise, surprise. And then we'll open it up for Q&A for the last 20 minutes. So that's our plan, and if there are objections, you can keep them to yourself. <laughs> um, so I like to walk around a lot when I talk, so excuse me. Um, and I've got 10 minutes to, to talk about a lot. But my main point here is that the form of cities matters a lot. And you can organize a city fundamentally around cars or around people. And there are a lot of design choices that are embedded here that we've forgotten about or we've missed altogether. So these examples are going to mostly focus on China. But I want to start with a little bit about why cities are so important. Two years ago, we passed a threshold. It's the first time in human history when more than half the world's people lived in cities. There are now about 7 billion people on the planet. Half of them live in cities. Half of them don't. By 2050, there will be 10 billion people on the planet. And all the new ones are going to land in cities. And 95% of them are going to land in developing country cities. So China today is pouring half of the world's concrete. To give you a sense of this, I put up a couple statistics. A new Tokyo or Buenos Aires built every year. It's a new Houston every month. And so the point of this is, let's make sure they're not actually Houstons. So no this is, Houston. yeah, no offense to you, maybe a little. Um, so, so this is about urban form. The average American burns almost 20 tons of CO2 per year. But if you live in Chicago, you're about a third less. If you're in New York, you are two thirds less. It's partly because you have a smaller house, but it's emphatically because you're not driving all the time and because you don't waste as much energy when you're not all sprawled out. So this is the beginnings of form matters. And so I'm going to talk about some of the rules of urban form. How many people here have been to China? A lot, at least half. So you may have seen this pattern flying in. In China, they build in what's called superblocks, half-kilometer square blocks, inside of which they will put 70 identical apartment towers. So this is high density, which is what planners have always argued for, but it's a terrible way to build a city because it creates the need to move long distances. If you live in one of these developments, there's nothing you can do in that development except sleep. You can't shop. You can't go to work. There's no health care. There are no schools. There's not much recreation. And so you've invented a system that requires people to drive. And then you surround those super blocks with these super boulevards, these 12-lane boulevards, and nobody wants to walk. Nobody wants to ride a bike. 
So this is the before and after topology, and this is how urban form, how you start to think about it. This is a real-world plan on the left of a new city near Kunming called Chenggong. And they have these super blocks, just like what we saw. And a rather brilliant architect named Peter Calthorpe came along and said, stop, we're going to break this up. And we're going to have a much more permeable, dense street network of smaller blocks. And I'm going to walk through the steps that that entails. So this is where you start with these huge blocks and huge boulevards. You replace those boulevards with a pair of narrow one-way streets. Because they're one-way streets, you don't have left-turn conflicts. So you can subtract about a third of the pavement, increase the ability of cars to get through, and make narrow streets so people can cross them. You're now down to three lanes instead of 12 or so. In between those, you put in car-free streets with dedicated bus lines. You can ride bikes, you can walk, you can take a bus that does not compete with traffic. And then in between those, you put in local streets. The topology on the bottom has less pavement than the topology on the top. It has much better throughput, and it creates an ecology all by itself, a human ecology of commerce, of social interaction, of mixed uses. So just by rethinking the topology, by the way, the city of Kunming in this Chenggang development adopted Peter Calthorpe's redesign and stopped all construction and rebuilt around that mode. So this is underway now. There are actually a total of 53 projects being built with this new topology or some variant of it. So that's, that's one big step. The next step is the one I talked about earlier about are we building cities for people or for cars? So this is the largest traffic jam in human history, 61 miles. It took 11 days to unsnarl. And this is in a country where only 5% of the people have cars. So if you look at this, it doesn't take a lot of mathematical extrapolation to understand that you're not going to solve China's transportation problem with more cars, right? So if you devote the city to the cars, you get that. One of the iron laws of transportation, which American transportation planners have never figured out until about now, is if you build it, they will come. The more lane miles you create, the more cars you attract. And you cannot fix congestion by making that road wider, I promise you. The most congested cities in America are the ones that have the most lane miles per capita. So what do you do instead? You're a planner in China. You're going to create one USA worth of cities in the next 25 years, and you don't want this. And by the way, Chinese citizens are getting richer. When you get rich, you want to buy a car. So what are the alternatives? The first alternative is to think about feet. And some of you heard the conversations we've had already about walkability. On the left, this is a before and after picture here, is a highway running through, this is in Guangzhou. And on the right, they took that same area and they repurposed it for human beings. It costs very little to do this. They clean up the water, you put in some pedestrian amenity, and you've created a vital city subcenter right where there used to be a disaster. Bicycles is another. The Chinese used to be the greatest bike riders on the planet. And they started to phase out bikes for cars. But look how many more people you can fit on bicycles in the same amount of area compared to cars. The thing about bikes, though, is if you don't build the infrastructure for them, they do not happen. So you have to make space for them. It's elementary, but it's incredible how, few people, how many people have forgotten this. The previous picture was people with their own bikes. And by the way, there are 150 million electric vehicles in China, but they're electric bikes, which makes more sense, doesn't it, if you're congested? China has also now more than 50 cities with these public bike programs. You've seen them around Aspen. The one in the, we don't have the Hangzhou picture here. The one in Hangzhou has 50,000 bicycles in it. 
You just swipe a card, you take a bike, you park the bike, you're done. Just change the whole topology. This is my favorite idea here. Um, most cities in developing countries, most streets in developing countries are kind of a chaotic mess. Been to these big boulevards in Mexico City or China or India or Turkey, and it looks like the picture on the left with everybody fighting for the same few square feet of space. And the consequence of that is nobody moves very fast. So a brilliant architect and mayor in Brazil named Jamie Lerner invented a new system called bus rapid transit. And I'm going to give you the overriding statistic first. If you do it well, it costs 5% as much, and you get the same capacity, the same speed, and the same throughput as a subway. 95% off. Plus, you can build it in nine months. So that's what this is on the right. It's called bus rapid transit. And there are a half dozen innovations that make it work. That's the same street, by the way. Um, that system in Guangzhou was built in nine months. It hauls 800,000 passengers per day, that one line. They're building a lot more lines now. And so what are the tricks? Obviously, one of them is to give them an exclusive right away so they're not competing with traffic. Another one which you can see is they have stations instead of stops. And the difference is you pay to get into the station instead of paying to get into the bus. So you don't have to wait with a little transaction cost every time somebody boards. A third one, which you don't see in this, but many of them have, is the buses are double long, or even triple long. And there are a wall of doors, and they're at the same level as the platform. So the bus rolls up, the doors open up, people get on and off, just like a subway. These buses have transponders on them that turn the lights green when they approach. They have computerized ticketing. They have bike depots at every stop. So what they've done is they've thought through systems. And one of the key points about this is this costs much less than any alternative. It doesn't require exotic technologies, but it requires a lot of thoughtfulness, a lot of intelligence here. It's a high-design, low-tech future. And that's the point, if you heard Jeanette Sadek Khan the other day talk about, repurposing our streets so that they work in dramatically better ways. I won't go through this all, but there's a whole series of innovations, each of which seems little, but you put them together and you get quite an amazing system. Um, there are now state-of-the-art bus rapid transit systems on every continent. In the last five-year plan, the Chinese government committed to building 3,000 kilometers of this. I think the next one will be a lot more. And they're really, they're great. There's one in Mexico City on what used to be the most crowded, nasty, polluted boulevard in the city, Insurgentes. It's incredibly fast. The last main innovation, and there are many more and layers of detail here, is that you have to control cars. Everybody wants a car, and there's not enough space for cars. And if you put those two facts together, you come up with an inexorable policy requirement, which is you have to put a lid on the number. We were talking over dinner about parking. So after the car was invented and popularized in America, laws were passed that says every new building has to have a minimum number of parking spaces per occupant. If you build it, they will come. Create a minimum number, you get strip mall topology, and that's exactly what we got. Now, flip that around. In Tokyo, you cannot buy a car unless you can prove you have a parking space already. Some cities in China are moving to maximum cars instead of minimum cars. In um, England, you pay 25 pounds to drive an SUV downtown on a given day. In Shanghai, you have to spend 13,000 bucks to buy a car permit. In Beijing, you have to go through a lottery to get a car permit. In San Francisco, they charge more to park when it gets congested. So my point is there's a dozen ways to think about car control, but if you don't do it, you're back to that 60-mile traffic jam. Um, 
I'm going to conclude on this slide and then turn it over to Eric, who will talk about the economics. But the last thing I wanted to say is you have to draw a line around the city. Every city in, in Oregon has an urban growth boundary. It's required by law. If you create an urban growth boundary, you can densify. You can build economical transit. You can save that energy, that half off or two-thirds off that you get. And, by the way, you preserve the green space. If you always let people do greenfield development, if you don't have the political courage to draw that line, you're digging your own grave. And that's what a lot of people are doing. Um, so this is one of the issues we're pushing hardest in China today. Eric, over to you. Well, thanks, Hal, and uh, thank, uh, thanks to all of you for coming tonight. And I'd like to thank the Aspen Institute for putting me on stage with my friend uh, Hal Harvey, who's, uh, uh, I think, uh, one of the uh, most high-impact uh, environmentalists uh, working today. So is, as Hal said, uh, Hal talked about cities as places, as physical places with transport networks and, and uh, uh, physical geographies. I'm going to talk about them for a few minutes as economic entities. Uh, and then use that to transition into a broader discussion about, uh, about the relationship between the economics of cities and, uh, and decarbonization, and, and we'll, as Hal said, get into a somewhat broader discussion about how we win the battle uh, against, uh, against climate change. So uh, my starting point is that if we, if we roll back the clock uh, about 300 years, uh, we would see a very, different, uh, a very different landscape. Cities were not the economic powerhouses uh, that they are uh, today. Uh, if you look at this nice picture here before the Industrial Revolution, you, know, you see this sort of uh, uh, beautiful countryside with a few sheep uh, and, the, and the big uh, mansion, you know, the chateau or castle or stately home there, which is where the Lord lived, who oversaw all the agricultural workers uh, on, their, on their land. Economic power before the Industrial Revolution was in the countryside. Uh, it was the landowners. And you know, there were still cities, uh, uh, and there were places of, of trade and commerce, um, but they actually weren't that rich. Uh, that as cities, they, cities tended to just grow uh, with population, uh, and uh, the types of industries that were in cities, mostly craft-based industries, didn't really scale very well. If you were a smithy or a leather maker or or uh, you know, making pots or whatever. These were uh, uh, craft industries. So the wealth was, uh, was really in the countryside, um, uh, in, in concentrated in the landed, uh, you know, the landed uh, aristocracy. Um, but the Industrial Revolution changed that and created the kind of modern cities that we have today. This is a picture of, of Manchester uh, in the Industrial Revolution. And the reason why uh, we had this huge change in the nature of cities was because of economies of scale. Uh, the technologies of the Industrial Revolution, uh, steam power and then you know, later electricity and fossil fuel-driven uh, power, uh, steel and other things, uh, required large amounts of capital, big factories, uh, concentrations of workers uh, all in one place, and also required uh, connections into transport networks and, and networks of trade and, and so on. And so this completely revolutionized what the city uh, uh, was about. And cities then took over... Uh, as the economic uh, powerhouses. And this notion of, of economies of scale and productivity increases that cities uh, unleashed is still important today and still actually is a major factor in describing how cities as economies grow. And some of you uh, may have been to see uh, uh, talks uh, earlier this week by Luis uh, Betancourt and Jeff West 
who have done some absolutely brilliant work on how uh, cities scale, how they grow as their populations grow. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really dumb down their work, uh, so apologies to them if they're, if they're in the room. But the basic message is that um, uh, uh, as cities grow, you know, their populations have tended to grow exponentially. We've seen exponential uh, growth uh, in uh, the size of cities uh, over time. And as the population of a city grows, you need to add more infrastructure to it, more miles of roads, uh, more energy networks, uh, more housing, and so on. And what they found is that that grows too exponentially, but at a slightly slower rate than the population. That as cities grow, they get more dense, they get more efficient. That you don't need quite so many miles of, of, of uh, electricity grid or, or gas grids or whatever. And, and that's because of the economies of scale and densification. And also because we've just gotten a bit better and a little bit more efficient uh, at, this, uh, at this stuff. And so this is why some of you have probably read, you know, cities are actually uh, an ener a more energy efficient, more carbon efficient way of, uh, of living, certainly than sprawling uh, suburbs uh, and the kind of uh, strip mall uh, geography that, uh, that Hal talked about. Um, the other part of a city's economy is the service economy. And that tends to scale roughly with population. So the number of dry cleaning shops and um, you know, uh, haircutting you know, salons and fast food restaurants and all the kind of service things, they tend to rise pretty much uh, uh, linear uh, or at the same rate as population does. But then here's the interesting thing. And this is what cities really excel at uh, economically, which is the knowledge economy. Um, and uh, what they found is that knowledge businesses scale uh, what the mathematicians call uh, you know, super exponentially, that they grow actually much faster than the rate of population in the cities. And, uh, and this is what's adding most of the economic value in, in, in cities. Now, you know, uh, knowledge work can take all kinds of forms. Uh, it can be um, you know, industrial knowledge. It can be you know, today uh, computer and communications knowledge. It can be biotechnology. It can be knowledge in universities. Um, but that cities, by bringing huge numbers of people together into very dense networks, create possibilities for interaction, sharing of knowledge, new forms of organization, and so on, that aren't possible uh, when people are in a much uh, less, uh, less dense setting. And uh, this has uh, allowed uh, uh, cities to really become hubs of, of, of the knowledge uh, economy. And this is why cities have gotten rich, uh, in essence, and why per capita growth in, in cities has, uh, has taken off. And um, this understanding how things scale as they grow is also very important to understanding the question of how do we make cities uh, uh, decarbonize and make them uh, help us in the battle against climate change rather than be uh, a cause of climate change. And here we have to do two things. We have to take this yellow line on the bottom, the infrastructure economy, and we have to bend it down. We have to dematerialize uh, the economy in cities, become more efficient with our energy, with our transport, with our housing, et cetera. And at the same time, if we want economic growth to happen, if we want more uh, per capita income and wealth, we have to take this other line, the knowledge economy, and keep bending it uh, the other way and get more productivity out of the energy and materials and, and, and so on that we have. And so one can actually think of the challenge of climate change as a productivity problem. How do we get more GDP out of the carbon that we emit? You know, we're all used to thinking about energy efficiency or, uh, or labor efficiency or capital efficiency, but we can also think of a kind of a carbon uh, efficiency or carbon productivity. And one can do some, some pretty simple arithmetic to figure out, well, how much more productive do we have to get 
with our production of carbon in order to meet uh, the challenge of climate change, the types of issues that Al Gore was talking about earlier today. And, and the numbers uh, are actually fairly stark. So if, let's, say, let's say we imagine we want GDP to kind of continue roughly on the track that it's been. World GDP has been growing about 3% a year, even you know, uh, without that little bump of the 2008 crisis. Let's assume we want to keep something roughly similar happening going forward. But we also know that global emissions need to come down by about 2.5% uh, a year to uh, uh, keep temperatures from rising uh, above 2 or even 3 degrees. So that implies that the, uh, our productivity in producing carbon actually has to go up 5.6% uh, per year, which is a pretty huge number. Or another way to put it, uh, today we produce $740 of GDP per ton of carbon we emit. That has to go up to about $7,300 per ton of carbon. So that's a 10 times increase uh, in our productivity in this sort of precious atmospheric space that we have. Now just to put this in perspective, um, we have seen other forms of productivity go up by factors of 10. So it has happened before in human history. The Industrial Revolution, U.S. labor productivity rose uh, 10 times from uh, 1830 to 1955. But we have to do something similar in terms of carbon productivity uh, about three times as fast, you know, by about the middle uh, of this uh, century. So this gives you a perspective of the degree of change we need. Just as I talked about at the beginning, that the Industrial Revolution created this massive change in where economic power lies and the geography of cities, going from an agricultural to an industrial economy. We need something on a similar scale to go from the economy we have today uh, to a, a clean energy and sustainable but still growing uh, and prosperous uh, economy. So how do we do that? Well, this is where we get into the broader discussion of, of uh, climate change strategy. One could say we have had a strategy, uh, what I like to call the, the Rio dream, because it really started in the, uh, the Rio climate, International Climate Conference in 1992. The idea is that uh, the scientific community would do its work, investigate what was going on with global warming and the uh, uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, has produced a series of reports ever since then that somehow we thought that our political leaders would read these reports and actually you know, see that there was a, a case for action and, and, and act rationally, that the UNFCCC, the UN body that oversees the global negotiations, would broker a global agreement. Uh, again, this is you know, some of what uh, Al was talking about earlier today. And then miraculously, you know, with this global agreement in hand, our national governments would, in a very far-sighted way, do things like put a price on carbon through carbon taxes, cap and trade, or what's called red uh, uh, for the rainforest, and then it would all be uh, okay. Well, uh, as Al noted, you know, that came crashing down in the, in the negotiations in Copenhagen. Uh, it came crashing down when the Waxman-Markey legislation died in the U.S., and to be honest, we haven't made... Uh, uh, enough progress since then, even though we've made uh, progress on things like the recent EPA regulations that were announced uh, uh, by the administration. So we need a different strategy because the Rio Dream uh, hasn't been working. And one way that we're thinking about it, and, and, uh, uh, and Hal and others, is that uh, if we go back to what is the economy that creates these cities, that creates these landscapes, these energy systems, these material systems, you can almost think of them as like organisms with metabolisms, taking in raw materials, doing things to them, creating knowledge, products, and services, and then putting waste products out uh, the other side. And this is actually a picture uh, of 
of, uh, of an economic metabolism, of an economic ecosystem. This was produced by uh, Ricardo Hausman and his team at Harvard. And just like biological ecosystems, these kind of economic ecosystems are both robust. On the one hand, they're hard to change, but on the other hand, they're also very sensitive uh, to change. And if you go back and again look at the Industrial Revolution, you can see how that new technology innovations like the you know, steam engine or electricity or, or the car um, or key organizational inventions like the Joint Stock Corporation in the you know, Parliament Act of 1855 or, uh, or key governmental policies um, created tipping points in the system. They, they sort of poked sensitive parts of the system uh, and that triggered transformation, self-reinforcing feedbacks in the system that kicked it into, uh, into a, a, a new mode. And we've actually been doing a lot of uh, studying of the Industrial Revolution, trying to find you know, what were some of these sensitive points, how did, how did it kick into a new, a new, uh, a, a new mode of, of being. And then asking about our current system, where might those sensitive points and tipping points be in the system where we can use policy to accelerate uh, innovation and, uh, and transition? So in other words, a short way of saying it is that instead of relying on the politicians to suddenly wake up uh, and uh, you know, come to uh, a new way of thinking about uh, these things, that we have to be much more targeted in our approach and find these sensitive points in the system where we can accelerate change even, in, even without a political environment that's, that's particularly helpful. And so just one example of what you know, one sensitive point might be uh, is the crashing price of solar. And some of you may have, have, uh, have read about this. This, is, uh, this chart is from some work uh, we've been doing at Oxford. Um, and it compares uh, solar energy in the green line uh, coming down over time versus nuclear, which is the red, and the bottom black line is, is coal. And what you see is that coal prices have been actually relatively uh, within a narrow band since the early 1900s. So this is a very long-term chart. It goes back to the beginning of the last century. And so coal price has been volatile, but it hasn't really changed that much. Nuclear has actually gone up in cost. It's had a, a kind of reverse learning curve. And solar has declined. This is the fastest decline in cost of any technology we can find. Uh, we built a database of over 600 technologies where we've looked at their cost histories, and solar is, is about the fastest one uh, we can find. And we've been doing some work as to why it's been coming down so quickly, and what you see is that it really relates to the increasing volume of solar installation. It's just like uh, the Moore's Law in semiconductors. There's something called Wright's Law, which is uh, cost decline as production volumes go up. And solar uh, is, just like the semiconductors in your smartphone, is a technology that's benefiting uh, from the same kind of innovation that your smartphone is, is benefiting from. And once that green line crosses that black line, which is the price of coal today, that's a tipping point for the system because then solar is not just competitive with coal unsubsidized, it beats coal. It's cheaper. It's not just environmentally friendlier, it's cheaper. So that's one example of, of where there could be a tipping point uh, in the system. So then that leads to questions as to what policies would maximize or accelerate the drive down that, that green line. So just some other examples of what could be other tipping points or intervention points in the system. Um, you, know, uh, you know, we can look at technology. So, for example, uh, you know, there's been a huge uh, wave of development of natural gas uh, resources. Uh, whether you're pro-fracking or anti-fracking, 
The reality is that's not going away anytime soon. So the practical question is, how can we, in a sort of jujitsu move, turn it uh, to make it as green as possible? Uh, and so you know, we need to take a fresh look at things like carbon and capture and storage for natural gas. Uh, another uh, key technology play is the, is the smart grid. You've all probably been reading about you know, Google uh, paying uh, huge sums of money for a, a company that makes thermostats. I mean, who would have thought Google would be spending lots of money on thermostats? But uh, what they've figured out is that uh, the Internet of Things can extend to the home pretty quickly and that we can start creating the smart grid from the home in rather than the utility uh, out. And that could have uh, huge impacts uh, on energy efficiency and other things. Finally, you know, we're seeing all kinds of organizational innovations, the sharing economy, Airbnb, you know, sharing cars. Uh, in another interesting organizational uh, innovation, California has created a new corporate forum called For Benefit uh, Companies that allow companies to take uh, a longer-term perspective and build uh, environmental sustainability into their corporate objectives. Uh, policy. We've seen some of the most effective policies uh, recently have actually uh, eliminated a, a lot of carbon, but not from uh, in an environmental angle. Uh, so, for example, from a public health angle, the merc mercury regulations on coal uh, have actually had a very big impact on making uh, coal more expensive and, and less competitive. Um, you know, uh, another uh, angle could be, you know, we should be focusing on uh, creating a regulatory environment that allows driverless cars because that you know, could be a, a, a major source of energy savings in, in transport. And then lastly, you know, we need to be rethinking our political narratives. How do we get away from the framing of the problem as a cost-benefit problem? You know, how do we weigh off the cost of action today uh, versus the benefit of, uh, of avoiding a climate disaster later to a different narrative where we're actually talking about making a better economy? that uh, these new forms of cities that Hal was talking about, for example, aren't just more environmentally friendly, they're actually nicer places to live. They're greener, they're better for walking, better for social interaction, uh, better on all sorts of dimensions. Uh, likewise, many of the things that I've talked about you know, lead to uh, you know, better homes, uh, better ways of, of using energy. So, uh, so the message is that we need to uh, you know, think of this less as a, as a problem of putting, you know, prices on things and, uh, you know, global agreements. If we can do those things, that would be terrific, uh, but we can't wait. And so we need to find these uh, sensitive intervention points to uh, be able to start taking action now. Thank you. So we were going to, uh, you know, uh, just debate a few of the points that uh, came up in these presentations, but then in a few minutes, we'll turn it over to all of you. So start thinking of your hard questions now because we'll, uh, we'll come to the audience shortly. But uh, uh, before we do, Hal, I, I, I'd be curious to, uh, I was putting forward this idea of focusing on these sensitive intervention points and uh, policies where we can get a lot of carbon out uh, in a way that's politically realistic. What, it, what would be sort of your top five list for uh, areas that we should be focused on? The first one I would say is we have an opportunity now to decarbonize the entire electric grid. You saw Eric's chart of the 80% cost reduction in solar. There's been a 50% cost reduction in wind. There's also a demand reduction that's a radical revolution. These new LED lights use 80% less electricity than the ones they replace. Uh, and, it, and it runs through the gamut, those Nest thermostats. 
you put them in your house, you get 15% off on your energy bill, more or less overnight. So if you want to decarbonize the, the grid, however, you have to give it new rules. And that's the trick. That's exactly the sensitive point. Public utilities commissions in this country, there's 50 of them, decide whether utilities make more money by selling more energy or by providing better services. They decide if the next dollar of your bill goes into solar or goes into coal or anything in between. So that's an incredibly sensitive point, and it's open for public intervention. And that's the reason, in fact, why we got so far with renewables so far. I'll give one quick example. California requires one-third of all electrons to come from renewable energy by 2020. And there's no reason they couldn't get to 51% by 2030. And the governor needs to call up the, Cal the chair of the California Public Utilities Commission and say that's the new plan. Or the chair of the CPUC will do it all by himself. So half down to 50% by 2030 is a pretty great deal. I'll just give one or two more so we don't mm -hmm. take too much time. And then I've, the, and I've got one, too. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> the, the difference between a zero energy building and an energy hog is about 3% or 5% of construction costs. It's approximately nothing. A good building code causes great buildings. So California, sorry to stick on California. California has the best building code in the world. It gets modified, automatically tightened every three years. New houses in California use 80% less energy than pre-code houses. And they're talking about zero net energy as a requirement for every new residence by 2020. Where's the tipping point? It's partly the technology, but it's the enabling policy, which is the building code. Because it's always cheaper to build schlock. And the people that build it never pay the bills. So I'll, I'll, I'll see your tipping point and, and add, add you one. Great. Um, uh, you know, many of you know about this idea of smart grid, you know, that we need to reinvent the grid to both make it more energy efficient, but also to be able to handle all these dispersed renewables coming into it uh, uh, from all over. And the usual thinking is we're going to do it from the utility out, that um, you know, utilities are going to make massive investments to upgrade the grid over time. And we do need that to happen and, and need to uh, keep pushing for that. But there's some startup companies that are that are also working from the home uh, in. And, and you know, Google's part of this with its uh, Nest and home automation. Uh, apparently, Apple is also working on, a, 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 you know, at least this is in the Apple rumor mill, so it's not any inside information, you know, a, a really cool home lighting system using uh, LED uh, lights. And again, you know, th these things aren't just you know, more energy efficient, but actually you know, LED lighting controlled on your iPhone app can be really cool and fun. And you know, if you want the romantic mood light you know, setting, you can do that, or if you want it bright and so on. Um, and if you want it Christmas, you can make you know, lots of colors. And, um, uh, and there's another uh, company that some friends of mine in the UK have started that are taking USB technology. So you know the, the little white cable that you plug your, you know, your smartphone into your computer in? That's a smart grid. Uh, it runs electricity down it, and it's got two-way communications uh, on it. And just this year, they're about to, uh, there's a new standard coming out that can do 100 watts on that little cable, which basically means anything in your house can be run off that cable, except for maybe your fridge and your washing machine. And uh, so these guys have actually wired up a whole house with USB cables, uh, and uh, they run it off of a solar panel, and because solar panel takes in DC power directly, and this, you know, your USB cable is a DC power source. In fact, the reason why you've got that little white box on the end of it that you plug into the wall, that's because you're converting from AC in the grid to DC on your iPhone. And that thing gives off heat because it's losing a lot of energy. I think it's about 20% 20, 20 loss or something, something like that. So this gets rid of the little white boxes that are on all of your solid state stuff on your TV, on your computer. If you, you go to LED lights or on your lights, and you just get it direct off the 
off the solar panel. And even in uh, rainy, cloudy, you know, miserable uh, uh, England in the winter where I come from, uh, you can run basically a whole house off of uh, a solar panel, battery backup, uh, and you only need the grid for your fridge uh, and uh, you know, a few other heavy uh, appliances. And all of a sudden, you're off the grid for 80% of your energy needs. And this isn't you know, wild futuristic stuff. This is stuff that's filling out, and it's cheap. One of the nice things about this USB stuff is because we're using it for all of our phones and gadgets, it's already uh, quite cheap. So that's just another example to make everyone feel a little bit optimistic. So I have a question for you. Yeah. And we did not rehearse these, so I'm trying to trap them. <laughs> um, in your curve that shows less material intensity of the economy, the yep. line that's sub-exponential, yep. um, I want to know, does that happen all by itself, or do you have to drive it? And if you have to drive it, how do you drive it? And what are some examples, both pro and con? Um, well, it's a bit of both. Well, first of all, it's, it's still exponential. It's just growing more slowly uh, than the population uh, curve. Um, it does happen naturally because, you know, if you think about how a, a, a city grows, particularly if it's uh, involving densification, if it's not a sprawl model, you get a, economies of, of scale. You know, uh, the miles of, uh, you know, wiring you have to run, uh, you know, for buildings that are going up as opposed to uh, out is, is less um, uh, you actually get uh, energy, you know, energy efficiency from uh, dense building structures. So uh, uh, where I come from in London, a lot of the houses are built what are called terraces. They're, they're sort of all uh, you know, uh, next to each other. And you get huge heat sharing benefits uh, 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 across the houses. Uh, and so they're actually uh, very, very uh, energy efficient. Um, but you, know, you also have to drive it through the kinds of policies that you were talking about, whether it's creating boundaries on cities uh, so you don't get sprawl, uh, creating uh, road networks that are, uh, that are smart and, and, uh, and, and so on. So it's a bit of both. Is the congestion pricing in London working? Is that a tipping point, putting a lid on cars instead of a um, floor? The, you know, the, the evidence has been it, it has had some impact, but it's been much less than people mm -hmm. thought. So, so you know, as, as an economist, sorry, as an economist, you know, I should love pricing things, right? You know, that's the answer to everything. Put a price on it, you know, that'll, that'll do it. Put a price on carbon, put a price on cars on the road. But it works great in theory in textbooks, uh, but in the real world, it's, it's always a bit more complicated. And, and so what we saw in London with, with road pricing is, was there was a real dip at the beginning um, as people kind of said, ooh, I don't want to, you know, drive into town because it's expensive. Uh, but then, you know, that, kind of, that effect sort of wore off. People got used to it. It just became, you know, like, you know, if the price of, of gasoline goes up, you know, people kind of uh, adjust. So the long-term effect has been, has been less than I think, uh, think they hoped. Now, they, their answer has been they jacked the prices up again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I want to talk about pricing just for a second. Mm -hmm. The easy answer is always put a price on carbon. And there's not an environmentalist alive that doesn't think that would be a good idea. But I will argue that that's the second or even third most important thing you have to do. The big, the big winner in energy policy by far has been performance standards. And what are performance standards? They're the fuel efficiency standards on your cars. We doubled fuel efficiency from 1974 when Gerald Ford passed the first fuel efficiency law to 1985. In other words, we cut energy consumption of new cars in half in 10 years. No tax has done anything like that. The building codes that I mentioned. The Obama administration's EPA just passed some regulations. They're issued in draft form two weeks ago 
that require every state to reduce the carbon intensity, the carbon per kilowatt hour of the electricity it delivers. All 50 states have to do that. They have different benchmarks. They start at different places. But it's very clear who has to act and how they have to act. And you don't have to let the market sort it all out. And the reason I think performance standards are so powerful is there are realms where the market is simply disconnected. The people who build buildings never live in them, never pay the utility bill. When you buy a new car, you're planning on owning it for three years, but the car's going to be out there for 12 years, and it's going to be using gas the whole time. So the payback stream of fuel efficiency savings accrue to three or four owners, not just to the person who paid for it. And as you go through the whole economy, you find these, dis these disjunctions everywhere. I'll give you one last example. I spent some time with um, legislators and gubernatorial staff in Washington state, and they're interested in a price on carbon, and they think it's going to solve everything. And I said, well, let's think about this for a minute. The electricity sector, which is very sensitive to prices, you know, if you're choosing to switch between coal and gas or coal and wind, pricing would work, except that it's already decarbonized in the Northwest because it's all hydro and a little bit of nuclear and quite a bit of wind and solar. They have, they're going to have zero coal plants. So pricing isn't going to fix that. It's already fixed. Pricing doesn't work in buildings, as we've just discussed, and it doesn't work in cars very well. So the only extra thing you're going to get is industry, which is a very small fraction up there because it's mostly electricity already covered. So you could have a very high price on carbon in Washington state and not affect the carbon emissions of Washington state. And just, 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 just to build on that, you know, the experience in Europe with carbon pricing through the emissions trading system uh, has also been uh, uh, disappointing. So you know, for those of you who don't know, uh, Europe put in an elaborate uh, system of cap and trade uh, of selling uh, emissions rights. And again, this was the economist's kind of favorite uh, textbook answer because it's a market solution and, and uh, uh, allows you know, companies to, uh, you know, whoever can most cheaply reduce carbon to, uh, to reduce it. And you know, again, it works great in theory, but the problem has been it set up a huge onrush of lobbying and manipulation because it ended up being a very complex system. So people found ways to game it, and too many permits were created, and, and you know, basically the price of carbon never got high enough to have uh, any... Uh, significant effect, and also the system wasn't flexible enough when the economy crashed uh, in 2008. Then the price of carbon essentially went uh, uh, went uh, to zero. So, you know, what we've seen is that uh, more targeted pricing, where it's simple and consumers can understand it and respond to it, like taxes on gasoline. Right. So Europe has actually quite high taxes on gasoline. They have had a real effect. You know, the fleet average, uh, you know, miles per gallon of the fleet is much higher than Europe. Uh, and, that, and that's a you know, significant reason why. Uh, but the more you know, general schemes so far uh, uh, haven't, uh, haven't worked that well. So um, I, I think we'd agree that uh, you know, uh, pricing is one tool in the toolkit, and, and it can be effective under the right, right circumstances, but we shouldn't see it as a panacea and instead need to take these other uh, uh, targeted, uh, targeted areas. Well, we, we've been chatting away uh, for quite a long time now, so we should uh, go ahead and uh, turn it over to... Questions, objections, vehement disagreements? Please. Tony Shea. Uh, we have some microphones coming around, so it'll just be easier for everyone to hear if uh, you don't mind using the mic. So this, this nice lady here is going to bring you a microphone. Tony Shea, the founder of Zappos, is running an experiment in Vegas where he says that the productivity of cities grows exponentially as they get bigger. Mm -hmm. The productivity of companies diminishes as they get bigger. So his theory is if you can grow the city around the company, 
the company can still grow and get smarter. I wondered what you thought of that theory or his application of those theories. Do you think it'll work? Well, I, I, um, I, I think there's a little bit of apples and oranges going on there. Um, so he's right. Cities do become more productive as they, as they grow bigger. And that, that top line, the sort of knowledge economy bit, uh, you know, there's what the economists call increasing returns to kind of knowledge agglomeration. Um, and uh, again, this guy, uh, Ricardo Hausman at Harvard, has done some terrific work on that if, if people are interested. Um, but corporations are a very different thing. So cities are a bottom-up emergent phenomena. Corporations tend to be run in a sort of more hierarchical command control phenomena. And they tend to run into limits to growth because uh, their internal complexity gets high and, you know, bureaucracy sets in and uh, they lose innovative capabilities and, and things. So I, I, I would see them as just being two very different organizational uh, forms. Please, back here. Hal, I'm wondering if you could elaborate more on your Washington experience. I'm from Washington State. I work with elected officials, um, but mostly within cities and counties, primarily the Puget Sound arena. And they are grappling with climate change and recognizing they can't figure it out by themselves and looking at ways to collaborate with others. What advice did you give our governor and, um, and what can I bring back to our cities and counties in Washington State? Well, thank you. First, the first thing that has to be said is Governor Jay Inslee of Washington is the, I think one of the most, certainly one of the most, maybe the most enlightened, committed climate advocates in our country and he's a true leader. He's really terrific. I think the beginnings of wisdom, I'm an engineer. So land and physical systems, and so we have this guy here who understands complexity. I'm the guy that understands simplicity. And what I would do is dissect the economy into a few constituent parts, cars or transportation more broadly, buildings, factories, um, power plants. That's really about it. You can play with airplanes and stuff as well. But those are the big items. Food, agricultural productivity, also important. In each one of those areas, there is a suite of policies that have been tried and there are one or two that have knocked it out of the park in dozens that are either trivial or actually negative. So find the best one or two, and I'd be happy to give you my list, um, and pursue them with intensity. When you design policy, however, there are some really important principles that are mostly honored in, uh, how did Shakespeare have it? Honored in the absence? Mom? Honored in the breach. This is why mom <laughs> comes to things. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so, for example, I mentioned, I mentioned this nice policy that Gerald Ford signed to double the fuel efficiency of cars. Well, that was all it went. So we went the next 30 years with no increase in, in fuel efficiency. Meanwhile, we increased the size of the weight of cars by 50%, and we doubled the power of cars. So we put all that technological improvement into getting bigger and fatter and faster instead of more efficient and more intelligent, right? So the first principle that I would advocate for is continuous improvement. You have limited legislative bandwidth. It's hard to pass a building code. It's hard to pass a fuel efficiency standard. So make it increase automatically 2.4% per year. Mm -hmm. Just lock it in. The second one, and I won't, I won't filibuster here, is think very hard about your goal. Because oftentimes people legislate with the wrong thing in mind. We made in America, we have the tightest air pollution standards for cars in the world. Um, in terms of conventional pollutants and their performance standards, and they work magic. 99% reduction in conventional pollutants, particulate matter and volatile organic compounds and so forth. 
And we forgot about that one other one, which is CO2. In Europe, they kind of went the other way around. And they let efficient cars have worse pollution, right? So if you don't get the goal right, you're certainly not going to get the outcome you want. Um, anyway, I, that, I think that's my, my general point. In each sector, find the best practice policy and pursue it with some very careful structural ideas. Eric, this is a question for you um, about the solar yeah. uh, slide. So the first question I have is, does the solar cost um, per capacity, does it include installation costs? So solar is limited in certain areas. So if you are to actually replace coal, you're going to have to yeah. do power lines. So is, the, is that installation cost actually reflected in your graph? And then the second question is, has anyone performed a study on the carbon footprint per kilowatt hour manufactured? And does that carbon footprint as actually get recovered by the end of the useful life of the solar panel? Yeah, both, uh, both very, good, uh, very good questions. So in the first one, that, that graph does not include installation. That's just the module costs. And part of the reason for that is the installation costs you know, can vary hugely depending on what you're installing on and uh, uh, you know, uh, whether it's residential or commercial and, and, and so on. But, this, uh, but we're very quickly running into uh, an issue where it's not the modules uh, that are the main driver of, of expense of getting it you know, installed and generating power, but the installation costs. So there's a lot of work going on now, both to reduce the installation costs just by engineering it better. And again, volume helps, just as with the modules. The more we do it, you, know, uh, uh, you get this learning curve effect. You know, smart engineers like Hal you know, love to tinker with things and figure out how to, you know, how to make it work better and cheaper. And so that's happening on the installation side as well. But also, the um, uh, technologists working on the panels themselves are trying to now make them in ways that make them much easier and, and cheaper to install. But then the, the next point, though, is the system integration costs of how do you get them into the grid, and this is where the smart grid stuff comes in. So there's a whole sequence of, of, of barriers that need to be removed and costs that still need to be reduced before it really can go and compete with, uh, uh, with coal uh, on its own. And sorry, what was the second question? Uh, Oh, carbon footprint. Yes, uh, so there, uh, I know the British government has done some very detailed studies on the full life cycle uh, carbon footprint of, of the, uh, the technologies. It's a very important thing to do with all these renewables is to make sure uh, that, that we're actually coming out uh, as positive as we think we are from a footprint standpoint. And you know, the, the answer to those studies is uh, yes. Uh, but again, you know, there's things we can do to build in from the beginning, um, reducing you know, uh, use of certain chemicals during the manufacturing process, you know, making things so that they can be disposed of at the end of their life cycle. And I, I, think the, I think the carbon payback is less than a year now for most solar manufacturing. Yeah, that, 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 that sounds about it's right. For, it's and the product it's lasts coming. 30 years or something, so it's a few percent. But, yeah. it's, but it's still, I completely yeah. agree with you. I would disagree with you on one point. Oh, good. Um, which is people argue there's a lot of things we still have to do to yeah. make you know balance of system and storage and yeah. cloudy days and i think of course it will be better when we have cheaper batteries and cheaper balance of yeah. system and so forth but our electricity system is actually incredibly flexible right now and there are vast untapped flexibility resources and the consequence of that is you can load up to 80% renewables on the grid without a problem, and this was demonstrated in the most extensive electricity grid model ever developed at the National Renewable Energy Lab at MIT. Um, what you have to do is optimize against all your 
possibilities, including demand and supply side. So the Nest thermostat is a nice idea. Electricity storage is incredibly expensive. Thermal storage is incredibly cheap. We have 100 million large-scale unused thermal batteries in America. They're called buildings, right? So if you know it's going to be really hot and you know the wind's not going to blow, you're going to need a lot of AC in the afternoon and you have an electricity shortage, you pre-cool the building a little bit, a couple degrees, starting at 8 a.m. to noon. And then from noon to 7 p.m., you cycle the air conditioners on and off in a whole cluster of skyscrapers. It's all going to keep you within your comfort zone, but you won't have that horrible electricity peak. So we don't, take, we don't even pay attention to the demand side of the meter. We only pay attention to the supply side of the meter. That's crazy. And, and I, I, I would also add, too, that um, there's still you know, benefits that we're learning about you know, from these things, like system robustness. I've, I have a friend who um, had the good fortune to put a, a solar panel and some battery backup uh, on her uh, roof of her place in, in Manhattan just before Sandy hit. And uh, she, sent, she put a picture on her Facebook page that you know, the whole block was dark. There's one light on. And that was because you know, she had a couple days of juice uh, stored up in, in, in the battery. And of course, you know, everyone in the neighborhood ended up coming, coming to her place. Yeah, don't, so there, don't tell. So, so there is a robustness uh, factor to, uh, you know, uh, to these systems uh, that can be very beneficial. No questions, please. Two questions. Um, first, let's talk about the East Coast. In terms of a, a, a green ring around the city, mm-hmm. I mean, the trains left the station. So how do you define the city with the urban sprawl? Does the urban sprawl become, is that part of the city? Um, And my second question has to do with the um, code requirements. We see year after year incremental changes in building requirements, higher SERs or or insulation requirements. Um, Do you see... Uh, like we see in other, in technology, any more, I guess I'd refer to them as disruptive changes in building codes that would kind of um, um, uh, expedite you know, or, or, or be much um, more beneficial to um, the yep, yep. we're all talking about. Let me try those in reverse order. The wrong way to develop a code is to try to think of every facet of a building and then write a rule for it. You know, how's the footers laid and what kind of drainage do you have and what kind of walls do you have and so on. You end up with a big fat book and that stifles innovation and it drives up costs and it makes builders hate you and it, and it creates a political counter reaction. Bad policy in pursuit of good ideas fails and it causes a counter reaction, a big one. The right way to do A building code, in my opinion, is to set very clear performance specs. You will not use more than so many BTUs per square foot per cooling degree day, for example, or so many lumens per square meter or square foot or whatever. Um, And, of course, you need certain structural minimums and fire code minimums. Um, But uh, I I bet you most builders would take much stronger performance standards if they could sweep away the clutter of the line-by-line spec. And this is a grand bargain. It's good for liberals, and it's good for conservatives. And it's emphatically good for the building industry, and it's really good for the environment. Um, and you're going to save money, a lot of money, both building money and operating money. So you have to, when you think of policy, you really have to do what we were talking about before. You have to think about best practices. And it's not just the lofty goal, but the how matters dramatically. Performance-based regulation. We've just written a paper on that for the electricity sector, and it's getting a lot of attention, and it's pretty exciting. Quickly onto the question of 
the East Coast, you know, as the train left the station. Unfortunately, the train's been shut down and the cars have less to go. Not garage. enough trains. Yeah. yeah. Um, we have a challenge in America, which is to reinvent our cities and suburbs. And the millennials are going to make it happen, I think. So for the first time in history, Americans are driving less than the year before. It's been going down ever since the recession. Yeah, we've had peak car, apparently. Peak car. And the millennials are getting their driver's licenses at a much lower rate, and they're driving. And, and if you think about it, it's because people, the old idea is that people want mobility. The new idea is that people want access, right? And you can get access by walking across the street if you live in an interesting neighborhood. But you have to drive six miles if you live in a suburb, a boring suburb. You can get access through the window of your iPad for some things that you just have to go a distance for. You don't have to buy a book. You push a button and it just shows up. So there's a lot of ways to reinvent. On the, the topological ways of reinventing suburbs, I think, is going to be about um, um, redensifying in a nice way. I'll just give an example. There's a lot of baby boomers that are going to have to retire, and they're not going to want to live in their huge houses. So you set up zoning that allows suburban houses to put in a granny cottage. Cheap and easy, overnight permit, if it meets certain specs. And you redensify, you create walking zones. Older people don't want to drive as much, or you don't want them driving as much, whatever. Um, and so you've, but you've also created an income stream for the people that couldn't afford that house otherwise. So you, you can kill, you, just rethinking the topology of the city, there's a lot you can do, and I think we're going to see a lot of creativity. Um, I was getting the signal. I think we've got time for one more question. Oh gosh, I don't know who. Okay, we'll, no, to okay, we'll take two questions. <laughs> <laughs> this gentleman and the lady in the back. Hi, I'm Bob. I'm a developer of those boring subdivisions <laughs> in, in suburban areas. And it's hard for me to believe that the American dream of a single family detached home with a yard and a white picket fence and a, uh, you know, and a good dog. school district and a dog, maybe two, is dead. Are you guys saying that, or is, are you trying to urbanize suburbia? I mean, what's the solution here? I don't think it's dead. I think it depends on your phase of life and your individual preferences and so on. But even a suburb can have radically different design ideas. I'm sure you've... There's a place called Village Homes in Davis, which was built in the early 80s. And instead of giving everybody its own yard, they pushed the houses out to the street and they made little parks in between them all, common areas. Um, so there was a social interaction, and, there was a, and then they put a bike path that connected all the common areas. So there was two networks. There was a street network and a bike network. Same space, same density, same single-family thing, but a radically different living environment and a different way of being. So I, I, think, it's, I, think, it's, I think there are social trends that are going to cause a lot more urbanization and a lot more intensification, and those are secular trends, but there will still be people that want the single-family house and their better topologies. That. If I could just add one point also, you know, you're, you're absolutely, we, you know, we don't want to socially engineer what people, you know, should want or force people into, you know, uh, a different kind of environment that they don't like. But we should recognize that the American dream of, you know, what is the dream house, something that's changed quite a bit. You know, the, the house you described with white picket fence is a quite recent invention and really came with the age of the automobile. Um, uh, you know, people didn't really live like that before. So we have to imagine in a future age, you know, when, uh, you know, as Hal said, you're doing lots of things virtually, when, you know, you hit a button and your, you know, Google driverless car comes to take you where you want to go, and, you know, there's going to be, you know, a whole number of things that are different in just the way, uh, you know, our children or grandchildren uh, will live, that the, what is the dream house will probably change too. So I think we have time for one last question. Um, I, 
<clears throat> you mentioned, uh, you keep mentioning how wonderful California is. I just built a passive solar straw bale house in California, and California has a long way to go before it. Um, the regulations really uh, encourage efficiency rather than specifics. But that is my question. Um, in the elegant redesign of the Chinese city that you were describing, um, is that, was that uh, an existing city with the big, um, that was from scratch, and you're encouraging them rather than building what they would normally have done, big blocks of apartments, you are encouraging them to bring in uh, uh, retail at the street level and all that business as well? Yeah, absolutely. One of the points I didn't get into is mixed use, which is hard to do. Um, you know, it's better to reuse than greenfield development, but China's going to be doing a lot of each, and it has to reinvent a lot of practices. Um, one, of the, one of the big issues we pushed very hard and which they're starting to adopt is mixed use. Um, not just shops and houses, but also offices and clinics and schools and recreational facilities and so forth. And, and developers don't love mixed use because if you just build houses, that's all you got to know. You know how to sell them, you know how to build them, you know how to price them, blah, blah, blah. You just go on. And also in the evolution of a little teeny economy, which is a mixed use development, they develop at different rates. And so you can't fill the restaurant until you reach a certain critical mass. So I'm not saying it's easy um, to, to go all the way with all this stuff, but I'm saying emphatically it reacts well to the human character, what human beings actually want. And if you look at the cities that people love, they have all those elements. They have urban growth boundaries. They have mixed uses. They have a, just a deep social interaction and, and a, a physical livelihood that's not a car, that's not car based. And, and in, in, in Europe, to do any major development these days, it all has to be It has to be mixed use. use. It just has to be. So I'm afraid that's all the time we have. Uh, Hal, do you have any final words of, of, of wisdom or well, so, thoughts? So it's very easy in the climate change business to get depressed. And all you have to do is read the assessments um, that come out every five years from the IPCC. Um, and I'm actually more optimistic than I was five years ago, even though we've had five years of often bad behavior. Uh, and we've got some new fossil technologies that are fairly pernicious. And the reason I'm optimistic is because it's clear to me now that a green future is a matter of choice. It's not a matter of whether we can afford it or not. It's a matter of how we lay out our cities and how we build our buildings and how we power our, our grid. Um, and that choice has now been enabled with dramatic reductions in technologies. It's not a choice that the market will automatically deliver to us, though. This is not a Pollyannish message. It requires the kind of precision interventions in policy, not top-down cap-and-trade, although that you know, I, I wouldn't dismiss that idea. But that idea, in my opinion, will follow the more atomized enlightenment that we're going to see state by state, city by city. So uh, I, think it's, I think we can win this one. And also, just to uh, add to ending on a note of optimism, the more we learn about uh, how to do this, the more we find that it isn't a hair shirt story necessarily. Of, you know, we're all going to have to sacrifice and have a worse life. Uh, if we go down this route. But actually, we're, we're finding that we can create uh, a better economy, better ways of living, uh, you know, more uh, different, uh, different ways of, of being prosperous, um, both uh, through exciting new technologies, but also new ways to organize uh, our, our social interactions and, and our economy. So um, hopefully that will send you out into the evening on a, on a, on a cheerful note. And thank you very much uh, for coming. <laughs>